Hey, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, kids, and every other human that's listening. I um, welcome you to Opposing the Matrix. I am redoing a show, actually, that I did the other day. And this is the quirkiest program I think I've ever used in my whole lifetime. It's called um, Melon Live Streaming. And uh, what you got to do at the beginning is you have to put in all the things that you want to show folks. And, uh, but you have to hit this little tiny button there, or this little tiny thing, put a check mark in there that, uh, you want the system sound on and God is my witness. Lord is my witness on was it Saturday or something that I did this show. I, I did that. And for some reason, one of the shows didn't come through. One of the videos that I tried to show didn't come through. I mean, it showed the video, but Unless you were a lip reader, there's no way you could tell what they were talking about. So I find myself sitting here on a Monday night, which I'm usually here on a Monday night, and doing this all over again. So maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it was supposed to happen. Who knows? I know in God's kingdom, there's uh, there's no accidents. Everything happens for a reason. And so I'm just going to shut up and, ex- and accept that, okay? But uh, when my time comes uh, to end this contract with uh, Melon, I think I may go with StreamYard or something like that. And uh, I just don't want to waste the money, you know. Um, So anyway, just to let you know what future plans are here. Um, And to answer somebody's question, no, I don't fall asleep during the the broadcast. I I have the camera way up here because it's the only place it fit. I got a big... 32 inch monitor and the camera sits way up there. So when I'm looking straight ahead, sometimes it looks like my eyes are closed because I'm reading or something like that. But uh, no, I don't fall asleep during the show. I mean, I did one a long time ago when Jim and Eric were here with me and um, but that's ancient history anymore. Um, Anyway. So what I want to do is I want to talk first and then present uh, something about global warming. Global warming is a farce. It has been for a long time. Um, it has been ever since it started. <clears throat> um, I, not many of you probably are old enough to remember the 1960s and 70s like I am, but uh, well, like I do. But uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s, <clears throat> we were told by scientists, and I use the term, term loosely, our climatologists, they're, they're scientists of the climate, um, that we were heading into an ice age. Yes, we were heading into an ice age, and the ice was going to come down so far, it was going to be thousands of feet thick all the way down to, to, to the southern states of the United States, and God knows how far in Europe, because Europe sits a lot higher than we are, um, in, in latitude, that is. And so we all waited and looked at every winter to see if every winter was colder. No, they were about the same. And we'd look to see if the summers were colder. No, they were about the same. Matter of fact, some of them were probably warmer than usual. And so once this uh, this global cooling or this pending ice age never worked out, um, I think a lot of uh, people that were donating to the scientific community uh, said, hey, you know, we gave you all this money to, to produce some stuff that or some truth in science that we could go with and, and share with others. And... Um, and you didn't do it. So put up or shut up. So what they did, and you got to, let's go a little bit into science, okay? And 
you know, if, if you're a, a laborer, a plumber, a fitter, um, an electrician, uh, no, I'm not going to say Indian chief. Um, if you're a mortician, if you're a doctor or a lawyer, um, anything outside of science, basically, um, you get a paycheck every week or every two weeks or once a month, you know, and, and, uh, and you've earned it. You've actually put in 40 hours or more, maybe sometimes maybe less and produced four hours worth, worth of work and got paid for 40 hours worth of work. And you take that to the bank and you put it in the bank and then you go to work and the next week or two weeks or a month later, you get paid again. Anyway, um, have you ever stopped to think of how scientists get paid? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, actually. Um, one thing that uh, it looks like I had a stroke. My one eyebrow is going down further than the other. Um, <clears throat> but what they do is uh, science doesn't get paid the way we do. They get paid by way of endowments and, uh, and grants and other things like that. And, and those grants and endowments are given by the government or they're given by some rich person that wants to find out something, you know, whatever. Um, you've seen it on TV uh, millions of times. If you've watched any science fictions or anything, you have somebody that says, Hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give you this money for this. So show me some results. Anyway, that's the way it works in the real world too. And so they, they come up and say, Hey, I'll give you $2 million. The government might say, Hey, well, we'll give you a grant for $20 million. And we want to know what you think about this. Actually, what happens is the scientist goes up to the giver. Let's just say the giver. And he says, Hey, I've got this idea. I've got this theory. Okay. And in this theory, uh, let's just use global cooling, for example, in this theory, I've noticed that over the past 30 or 40 years, it's been colder during the summer and and a little bit colder during the winter. And I think there's a nice age coming the government or the donor or whoever says, okay, I'll go with that. You know, if, uh, I looked at your paperwork and it, there does seem to be some kind of correlation. So I'll, I'll give you some money. And so we'll, we'll go and see what happens. And, and so the private donor gives 20 or 30 or uh, 10 or $20 million. And the government gives maybe that equal or even more. And, um, so the scientist gets to work and he compiles data and he knows that that grant is good for maybe five, well, let's just say 10 years, but the guy that gave all the money at once, you know, that's, that's all he's going to give. Okay. So he's got that money to live off of and to buy equipment and things like that. They don't, don't get me wrong. The money just doesn't go to wages, but a lot of it does. But, um, <clears throat> so he, um, but he knows he's got that grant from the government and that every year they're going to award him so much money, or maybe every six months, I don't know, to to produce some results or to say that he's pr producing results or to say something like, yeah, you know, I've got a beat on that and it's I've got a really good beat on it. And I think that maybe I'm on to something. Government says, OK, proceed. And um, <clears throat> So in the next year, the same thing and say until toward the end of the 10 year period, the government starts to say, hey, you know, we gave you 20 million dollars. You know, what what have you found out? Well, you know, I haven't come to any conclusive, um, any conclusive ideas or thoughts about what this exactly is. And I'm sorry, but, you know, I just I thought there was something there, but I don't. 
but I'm willing to keep trying. Well, the government might be a sucker or, or a donor will be a sucker and say, okay, I'll give you another $20 million because I think there's something there. Okay. So then he goes another 10 years and no results. The government's where the private person says, hey, that's it. You know, the private person says, I've wasted, you know, 20 or $40 million. And the government says, yeah, you know what? We, we expected results, but you haven't given us any or very little to go on here. And and so, you know, you don't get your money anymore. So, so the scientists, well, you know, um, I just bought this nice car and I'm living in this wonderful house and my wife is happy because she can go on shopping sprees all the time. And, or the wife is uh, another scientist and she's bringing endowments and who knows. But um, so he's comfortable to a lifestyle that he's been living for 20 years. And all of a sudden it cuts off. It's cut off at the tap. And he says, oh, I got to think of something else. And uh, so he gets together with some of his fellows, some fellow scientists. And a few of the scientists say, you know, contrary to what you've been finding, we've been finding it's been getting warmer. And we think that there's going to be a global warming. And we think that there's going to be, it's going to cause uh, crops to fail, rivers to dry up, uh, all different kinds of climate changes and calamities and and uh, we're going to research that. And the scientist says, oh, you know what? That sounds like a good idea. So he says, why don't you put put in your paperwork and I'll put in my paperwork. And together, you know, they'll, they'll see that two different groups of scientists are interested in this. And we'll get a book bucks from the government and maybe some private donors. And so the cycle repeats itself all over again. The guy's happy. His wife's happy. He's got that nice house, the big car, um, and the whole nine yards. And he's, he's sitting fat and pretty, you know? And that goes on for 20 years. Well, by then, you know, he, he started all this stuff when he was 25. And now he's 65 because, you know, that's 40 years that have gone by. And he's ready to retire. And he's built up a nice 401k. So he doesn't have to worry about, got himself in the stock market, buying pharmaceuticals. <laughs> yeah, Moderna. He bought Moderna stock and Pfizer stock. And he's sitting pretty. He's going to cash that in tomorrow because he knows he's going to retire. And he's going to collect Social Security, too, because he's been paying into that. So that's the way it rolls, folks. It really is. And, uh, you know, you, you hear about starving artists and starving musicians, but you never hear about starving scientists. Okay. That's because I, my opinion that there aren't any. Okay. They know how to work the system and they know how to work it really well. And it's become a... Um, a racket, so to speak. And I'm Italian and I can spot a racket 20 miles away. So it's, it's definitely a racket and a good one too. <laughs> if I wasn't a believer in Yeshua, I'd, I'd try to get away with it somehow, but um, <clears throat> I'm not. And I have to be honest and forthright. So anyway, <laughs> so now you got a kind of an idea of how science works. So <clears throat> when the global cooling didn't work, and they saw that there <clears throat> maybe some private concerns like um, your Soroses and some of your rich people say, you know, we can use global warming to our advantage. Cooling, not so much, but global warming we can use to our advantage because it's caused by men burning fossil fuels. So that, that kills the fossil fuel uh, industry, uh, oil, gas, coal. Um, and it's, it's, you know, camels, the, the horse and camel farts are really causing a lot of problems. And believe me, that came up. And uh, so, you know, we kind of got to scale back on, on the cattle farming and we got to convince people to eat vegetables instead of meat. 
And we got to convince people that they need to get electric cars because their cars are polluting the atmosphere and it's causing more global warming, yada, yada, yada. Well, it might be true to a certain degree, but um, global warming and global cooling have been going on on Earth way before man got here, if you believe the evolutionary model. And if you believe like I do in the young Earth model, uh, the biblical model, it's been happening since the flood. Everything was beautiful on Earth before a flood. Nobody could use the excuse for global warming. But after the flood, there's been there's been cool periods, warm periods, cool periods, warm periods. And um, if you read your history books or get off of this after we're done here and, and, and get online and type in the mini ice age, and you're going to find out that from like 1100 something to to 1500-something, it was actually much cooler on the earth and crops failed and people had a hard time making it during that time, especially the um, the poor people that had to work for a living, unlike the uh, barons and serfs, uh, no, the barons and uh, bishops and you name your chess piece except for serfs. Um, and society was not kind of human. I mean, the climate was not kind of human humanity during that time okay but then in 1500s uh maybe into the 1600s it started to warm up a little bit and and uh, people started to prosper because their crops weren't failing like they were in the whole nine yards and uh um the the farmers all said hooray hallelujah but that just goes to show you that the the temperature and the climate can change Uh, you're not going to tell me people that uh that the um the emission from cars back in 1100 caused the ice age. You're not going to tell me that um, camel farts or cow farts or horse farts or you name your animal farts uh, started uh, global cooling. And you're not going to tell me that man had anything to do really with that because the population of Earth was probably less than a billion people or maybe right around a billion at that time. So um, anyway, you can't blame mankind for that. But what you can blame for that, I feel, and I've read a lot about this, is solar activity. Uh, Solar activity is very, the sun is, the earth is placed in a very beautiful place in in the solar system. If we were any closer to the sun, it'd be too hot. Any farther away, it'd be too cold. Yahweh and all his wisdom put us right in the perfect place. You go to Venus and it's a boiling world with sulfur clouds that are going to kill you. You go to Mars, there's no atmosphere. Uh, good luck to Elon Musk. If he can get that to work, well, God bless him. But um, I don't see it happening. Um, but so we're unique, a unique part of the solar system. <clears throat> and the sun has cycles. They've, they've determined this now, and it's been proved in the whole nine yards. The sun has cycles, and they're called 11-year cycles. So for 11 years, it might be uh, it might be a hot cycle where there's more sunspots and more solar activity. It throws off more flares, and the sun is basically looks angry. And then for 11 years, um, it, it's, it kind of calms down, and there's less sunspots, and it's just a, ball, a burning ball in space that throws off very few um, solar flares and... <clears throat> And um, it's a behaving sun, okay? The prodigal sun, the behaving sun. Okay. So <clears throat> that has a lot to do with our with our weather, whether it's hot or cold. 
you know, I'm getting sick and tired of people. Oh, well, the oceans have risen so-and-so in the last 50 years. I've seen pictures online of water lines all over the world uh, from when people started taking pictures of these things. So how's a long, how long has the camera been around since about 1850 or so? So 1950, almost uh, just short of 200 years, uh, about 20 years short of 200 years. And uh, <clears throat> people have been taking pictures of the tides and and where they, they rest and where they ebb and where they flow and everything else. And, um, the pictures that come from 150 years ago are identical to the pictures that they're showing that were taken yesterday or last year or the year before last. So that the oceans are rising is a bunch of garbage. I've been hearing it all my life. New York city is going to be underwater. New York city is not underwater. Well, look at Venice. Venice is sinking. Yeah, it's sinking. <laughs> it's a ship that's sinking takes on water too. That doesn't mean that the, that the, there's water on the ship. Uh, on its own you know it's 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 a result of the ship going down and under um you know it's it's just crazy uh look at the netherlands and then well that's holland and they they built the dikes and everything they haven't reported the water coming over the dikes or anything like that so the fact or not the fact because it's not a fact it's a lie the lie that the um the oceans are rising is is a great lie. It's a very big lie, and it needs to be killed. It really does. I'm talking about the lie, not the people that. By the way, I got. See why I'm so careful is I I actually lost my Twitter account for 12 hours um, this week because they didn't like something I posted on there, and I thought that it was all going to change with uh, Elon Musk, and maybe that's just something he hasn't gotten to yet. But uh, I don't know. So you still got to tiptoe around um, around Twitter if, if you haven't noticed. And maybe I'm helping some of you out because you're getting ready to think that you can go free willy-nilly on Twitter and you can't. So anyway, uh, so what I want to do, there's an MIT study. MIT is the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And they did a study on um, on the earth. Okay, hold on. I got to do this the right way or it's not going to work. So I got to pick this thing here. All right, we're there. Article, it's on climatealarmism.news, okay? It was posted 112422 and written by Kevin Hughes. <clears throat> Very good article. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, MIT study Earth can regulate and stabilize its own temperature. All right, and you're going to be listening to a lady in a little while who's going to tell you the same thing. All right. And uh, well, we'll just let, let me read this real quick because I don't think it's a very long. No, it's a very short article, as a matter of fact. And um, sorry, I don't mean to make you dizzy by scrolling up and down that fast. So a study from the Massachusetts, in, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, has found that the Earth is capable of regulating <clears throat> and stimulating its temperature across vast timescales and even after dramatic changes in climate. The November 16th study... <clears throat> published in Science Advances, elaborates on the planet's free stabilizing feedback system, which has allowed the existence of diverse life forms the past 3.7 billion years, if you believe that stuff, or so. <clears throat> While this feedback has been assumed before, <clears throat> the study now serves as a private or primary evidence for the existence of this system. 
And, quote, you have a planet whose climate was subjected to so many dramatic external changes, said MIT scientist and study co-author Konstantin Arnscheidt. <clears throat> nice German name, huh? Uh, why did life survive all this time? One argument is that we need some sort of stabilizing mechanism to keep temperatures suitable for life, <clears throat> but has never been demonstrated from data that such a mechanism has constantly controlled the Earth's climate. To prove this argument, Arnscheidt uh, and his co-author, Daniel Rothman, uh, investigated existing paleoclimatic data collected over the last 66 million years. Huh. That's funny. Who collected them a million years ago? <laughs> I know what they're saying. It's just written kind of funny. Collected over the last 66 million years, they applied mathematical modeling to determine whether, uh, to, whether swings in Earth's average temperatures might be limited by one or more factors. <clears throat> the MIT research, uh, researchers believe that silicate or silicate uh, weathering is a critical mechanism in how Earth regulates its temperatures. As silicate rocks endure and corrode over time, deeper layers of minerals are constantly exposed to the atmosphere. Chemical reactions with the silicates extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and trap it, trap it in rocks and ocean sediment. Higher rates of carbon dioxide enter the atmosphere, build up weathering activity, grow the volume of exposed silicates that, in turn, takes out more of the greenhouse gas from the atmosphere, preventing future weathering. As expected, the timescales of the temperature stabilization correspond to the timescales that silicate weathering <clears throat> works, which is about 400,000 years. The uh, evidence left by fossils and ice cores indicate that the weathering is actually keeping temperatures in check. Uh, to some extent, <clears throat> pardon me, folks. To some extent, it's like your car speeding down the street, and when you put on the brakes, you slide for a long time. That's actually called slamming on your brakes. Uh, sliding for a long time before you stop. There's a time scale over which frictional resistance or the stabilizing feedback kicks in uh, when the Earth's uh, system returns to a steady state, said Rothman. Earth's stabilizing feedback cancels out global warming. The results are the first are the first to employ actual data to verify the existence of a stabilizing feedback. This stabilizing feedback would help to explain how the Earth has remained habitable through the dramatic climate changes in geologic past. On the one hand, it's good because we know that today's global warming will eventually be canceled out through this stabilizing feedback. On the other hand, it will take hundreds of thousands of years to happen. Not so, so not fast, uh, excuse me, so not fast enough to solve our present day issue, Arnscheidt uh, said. And there's a related uh, brackets here, related theory of annual rise in Earth's temperature due to climate change is now exhaustively disproved. And that's a link that you can click on if you go to this article. Without stabilizing feedbacks, fluctuation in, in the global temperature should evolve with timescale. But the team's investigation disclosed a system in which fluctuations did not develop, indicating that a stabilizing mechanism dominated the climate before fluctuations became too extreme. The timescale for the stabilizing effect, hundreds of thousands of years, corresponds with the scientists' forecasts for silicate weathering. Moreover, the study by Arnscheidt and Rothman disproves claims put forward by climate alarmists such as activist Greta Thunberg, Thunberg 
uh, former Vice President Al Gore, <laughs> my two favorite people in the whole world. Oh, here's a third one. And Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, the evil trinity. Okay. The study publication came amid a leaked video of Gates's disclosing that uh, clean, energy, energy, clean energy movement is a scam to further advance the interests of the global elites. There you have it. Uh, follow climatesciencenews.com for more studies that debunk the global warming narrative. I will be going there after this show. Uh, watch this video. Okay. The video is just basically what I read to you. Okay. They always do that. They make you read the whole article and then they say, hey, here's a video. <laughs> it's like, you jerks. <laughs> okay. So MIT has found that Earth can regulate and stabilize its own temperature. So while Earth is not a sentient being um, and cannot think for itself and things like that, it's not a god, it's not Gaia. Um, it's, it's interesting that uh, Yahweh has built into the earth a mechanism that will help to cool it down when it gets too hot and warm it up when it gets too cold. But you would know, you have to know that uh, a loving God would have to do something like that to keep things right on the earth, right? He thought of everything, every single thing he thought of, and he did. And that's why the earth survives. Okay. All right. Now you can argue with me about that. That's okay. I'm not not near you to listen to the arguing. So it's um, you can throw bricks at your computer monitor, or you know, it's fake bricks, not the real ones. Okay, that was pretty good. When MIT starts agreeing with you, you know, or, or proving that these uh, these lunatics that are that are trying to prove global warming are a bunch of uh, act jasses. Um, you know, it really is comforting to know that there are people that are true, that scientists that are out there looking for the truth, not to gain from anything. And that's what most scientists that are in climatology are, are there for to gain uh, monetarily. Okay. What I'd like to do now is to present to you a video. Um, let's see, what do we got here? Okay. This video is, um, is of uh, a UN representative saying that they own the science and that they have manipulated Google. And you'll hear her say it. They actually got together with Google and they said, hey, you know, every time we look up climate change, we're getting all this other stuff from people like me and you. Uh, that's, that's garbage, which we know is wrong because it's, we're pretty right on when it comes to calling out global warming. And uh, she said she, she, she worked with Google to where there meaning the governments, the um, climatologists and everything else, everybody that's on the, the losing side. Um, and I mean, ultimately the losing side, uh, that their stuff goes on top when you do a Google search. So if you want to do a search, go down five or six pages before. <laughs> I use um, DuckDuckGo. Um, I don't use Google very much anymore sometimes. But when I want the truth, I go to DuckDuckGo and it really helps out. So let's uh, let's look at this video. Yeah, let's see. This was at the Sustainable Development Impact Meeting 2022. Let's make it large so you can see these deceptive demonic people up close. And um, let's hear what this broad, and I do use that term for her, 
I don't usually use it for women, but um, I don't know. She's a subspecies of woman, I guess. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> let's listen to it and see what she has to say, okay? You know, we partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change, you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted uh, information right at the top. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science and we think that the world you know, should know it, and and the platforms themselves also do. Um, but again, it's it's it is um, it's it's a huge huge challenge that I think all sectors of society need to be very active in. You know, we. Oh, sorry. Um, so what she's saying again is that they got together with Google and uh, have committed play a video that's thirty five minutes long. This next video is 35 minutes long. Okay, so I'm going to play it, and I'm going to listen to it with you. <clears throat> I've listened to it already. It's an interview um, by uh, a Biz News. Uh, it's a Biz News production, so it's by biznews.com. And uh, it's very good. The lady asking the questions is very adept, as is the, the lady that's answering questions. And uh, they label her as being an extremist and a... Uh, I can't remember the other word, but I'll get to it when I start it up. Uh, but no, she's um, she's just a person that a scientist that wants to do science, and no matter what the no matter what the results are, she wants to do science. So anyway, let's go ahead and um, let's go ahead and play this. Okay, so I'm going to show it on the stream, and I've clicked all my little little boxes so you'd be able to hear this okay there's the gal that's doing the interview a biz news production and um well she'll introduce introduce it i know she does so let's make the screen big so we can see the nice people that we're listening to and let's go for it curry a climatologist who was the former chair of the school of earth and atmospheric sciences at the georgia institute of technology What's your background and experience in climatology? Well, um, <clears throat> I've been in the field for a while. I got my PhD in 1982, and I was studying um, the weather and climate of the Arctic, actually. And um, that became very timely when one of the biggest concerns about global warming was the Arctic sea ice, and I gradually um, my research over many decades now has, uh, four decades really, has um, spanned many topics in weather and climate. But over the last decade, I've focused primarily on climate dynamics, extreme weather events, um, predictability and prediction, and some philosophy of science issues really related to um, what we can learn from models, um, understanding uncertainty and ignorance and social psychology issues surrounding how we interpret all this. So my interests have sort of expanded. And I also do a lot of, um, at this point, I'm no longer at Georgia Tech. I am president of climate forecast application sector. And I work a lot with 
people having to make real decisions. Um, everything from electricity utility providers to insurance companies to farmers in uh, Pakistan and India. <laughs> so a range of applications that I'm working on. Your name comes up with a couple of other scientists who doubt the scientific consensus on climate change. What is your view on climate change? Okay, first I'm going to talk about the sociology of, of why certain people have been separated out as heretics or even called deniers. Um, you, you know, the, the basic facts of the situation are pretty clear. Uh, the temperatures, global temperatures, have been warming. Humans emit CO2 into the atmosphere. CO2 has an infrared emission spectra, which overall acts to warm the planet. But there's a lot of disagreement about the most consequential issues, how much of the warming has been human-caused, um, <clears throat> how important is human-caused warming relative to solar variability, ocean circulation patterns, and so on. So, so there is some very legitimate disagreements you know, about this topic. And myself and others that are in this category that you're talking about, we don't dispute the basics. What we do, dis what we do object to is the idea of a manufactured consensus for political purposes. This is not a natural scientific consensus that has emerged over a long time. It's a manufactured consensus of scientists, you know, at the request of policymakers, which has been too narrowly framed. There's too much politics in it. And, you know, that, that's what I object to. And there's a number of other scientists that object to this as well. And because, and we've also been critical of the behavior of some of the more politically active scientists who are exaggerating the truth and the interests <laughs> of, of a good story or political objectives or whatever. So, so that's what it's about. It's not about any fundamental scientific disagreement other than maybe levels of confidence, <laughs> you know, in, in certain findings. Well, I'd like to come back to the politics uh, in this whole scenario but for now it seems to have changed in terms of terminology it was global warming and then that shifted to climate change and recently it's now a climate emergency other than global warming being a component of climate change what potential reasons are there for this shift in terminology well people are trying to figure out how they're going to get people's attention Okay, now it's not, now they use global heating. Heating sounds more dangerous than warming. Warming sounds sort of nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, the attention, I mean, the attention is really shifted to these extreme weather events, you know, hurricanes and floods and heat waves and whatever. But there's very little evidence to tie. I mean, that's really part of natural weather and climate variability. You know, any signal from global warming usually can't be teased out. Um, 
in terms of these events and um, attempting to say, oh, this is global warming, you know, the floods in Pakistan and Hurricane Ian and whatever, you know, it's, it's possible that there's a minuscule component from the overall global warming, but it's very difficult to tease out from natural variability. These events would have happened anyways, <laughs> you know, you know, with possibly some minor change associated with the warming, but you can't really decipher that in an objective way. So, but, but people are trying to, you know, there's a whole bunch of complicated motives here. Um, can a simple ocean creature be the answer to vision impairment as we age? If you wear glasses or contacts, uh, we're going to a Nobel Prize. This ad. There we go. You know, people's worldview, their politics, um, career investments in a certain narrative, um, wanting to play various political games. Um, if you want to, if you're an academic scientist working in the climate area and you want to advance and get grant money and professional recognition, you would be well served to hew to the alarmist narrative. I mean, the people who are getting professional recognition and being put in charge of big institutes and centers are all alarmists. I mean, who, who speak about doom and gloom and exaggerate. How far is reality from this doom and gloom fear? It's, it's very far. It's very far from gloom and doom. Okay. But it's not upon us. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, if you go back, okay, I'm in the middle. Okay. People are being sued left and right over bad weather. You know, governments, oil companies, and everything, because they're not doing uh, People who think that they can control the climate <laughs> by, you know, it, it, it's just a pipe dream. Uh, even if we went to net zero, we would barely notice. It would be hard to detect detect any change in the climate. The climate's going to do what the climate's going to do. And there's a lot of inertia in the system. If what, if the carbon dioxide that we've put in is as important, as bad as some people seem to think, those effects are going to be with us for a very, very long time. And stopping now isn't going to, <laughs> you know, change that trajectory very much. So, you know, we just need to look forward and try to understand what's happened. But thinking that we're going to control the climate by going to net zero very quickly is not good. But the gloom and doom, I mean, compared to pre-industrial is held up as some sort of, you know, golden age <laughs> that we're supposed to go back to. Well, pre-industrial, you know, the, the, the weather was horrible. This was at the end of the little ice age. You know, it's the coldest period of the millennium. I mean, there, there were horrible famines and extreme weather and extremely terribly cold winters and springs and things like that. This, that was not good weather. The weather now is much better. Even look more recently, um, at least in the US where I've looked most carefully, the, the weather was much worse in the 1930s by any measure. You know, forest fires, droughts, heat waves, hurricanes, everything that you can imagine in the U.S. was much worse in the 1930s. 
Does anybody remember that? Well, no, most of those people are no longer living. But if you look at the data, there it sits. Most people have just look at the data since 1950 or 1970. The 1970s and 1980s, that was a relatively benign period of weather. And so if you just do the trend since 1970, oh, the weather is worse now. Well, yes, but it's not worse than the 1930s or 40s or even the 50s. So it's just, and people are able, to, people are much more prosperous globally. Poverty is way down. Life expectancy is up. You know, we're doing very well, you know, as we reduce poverty and human development advances. A lot of that has been, you know, fueled by petroleum and coal. Um, are there better fuels out there? Um, well, hopefully in the future there will be, you know, advanced nuclear and stuff like that, very promising advanced geothermal. But right now, this minute, I mean, having our entire energy infrastructure relying on wind turbines and solar energy is, is going to cause a lot of harm to a lot of people. Um, not j just to the overall econ economy. You can't run an industrial economy on wind and solar, at least <laughs> the way it's currently um, envisioned. It requires a huge land footprint, which people, at least in the U.S., people are, even the sort of environmental people are fighting against new transmission lines and wind turbines because of various perceived ecological impacts. You know, so, you know, you know, that nobody wants a landscape covered with wind turbines and transmission lines. Um, you know, just people haven't thought this out. That, and there, there's no emergency. <laughs> I mean, economically, you know, even the economic scenarios were all expected to be worldwide, like four times better off economically by the end of the 21st century. And a little bit of that might be shaved off because of damages from global warming. But we're, we're all going to be better off, you know, moving forward through the 21st century, unless we do really stupid stuff like just destroy our energy infrastructure before we have something better to replace it with. Okay, that's the biggest danger. The biggest climate risk right now is the so-called transition risk, the risk of rapidly getting rid of fossil fuels. Yeah, I mean, I'm no fan of pollution and crazy price spikes and whatever. I'd love to see inexpensive, cleaner, reliable, secure energy, you know, better than what we have now. But going to 100% renewables is not <laughs> is not a better solution. Um, it's, it's, yeah, the, the bit storage, people talk about, well, hydrogen backup is right. All of this is decades away. Um, the time between now and 2050 needs to be a period of technological development and experimentation, which different countries, different states, trying different things, see what works. And from there, you know, some good solutions will emerge. But trying to mandate that everybody goes to wind and solar is going to be an unmitigated disaster. The, the supply chain for all of this doesn't exist right now. Um, you know, it's material, very material intensive. Um, we have established, you know, pipelines for fuels for coal and and gas and, and oil and everything, although that's obviously been disrupted by the situation in Russia right now. But, you know, we can 
maneuver that, but we have that in place. We do not have the supply chain in place for all the materials that we need for wind and solar and batteries and whatever. So people have all these plants and they just can't get the materials right now. So, you know, we just need to accept that we're going to need decades, you know, at least three to figure all this out. And certainly by the end of the 21st century, we, we could have a really good, power infrastructure in place with abundant, clean, inexpensive power. But not if we fritter away all our efforts right now on wind and solar that's going to actually damage our economies. So we're going to be less likely to be able to really make the transition in the way that we need to, um, that will really support more people and the need for more electricity. Thinking that we're going to need less energy going forward is a pipe dream. I mean, we want more energy, electricity, especially if we're going to electric vehicles and heat pumps and and all the fancy things that we want to do with artificial intelligence and machine learning and robotics and whatever, all that needs electricity too. So we're going to need more electricity, not less. Mm. So, so we need to figure this out. And wind and solar, why it's an a near-term partial solution and maybe a niche solution for for some places. It's not a long-term global solution. Hi, it's Nancy from the International Rescue Committee. I'm at Chemish train station in Poland where many people are... All right, sorry about that, So the continued use of fossil fuels as opposed to renewable energy is not going to... It's not signing the planet's death certificate. Um, Yeah, I mean, even if we're going to transition to all wind and solar, we're going to need a lot of fossil fuels to accomplish that, to establish, to do all the mining and establish the supply chains and all the transport and everything else. So in the near term, even if the plan is to go to all renewable um, wind and solar, then you're going to need a lot of fossil fuels to get us there. It's just, you know, people just repeat these mantras without any thought, you know, and they, you know, you know, I don't know. It's not a good place. There does appear to be a rise in natural occurrences such as wildfires and floods. Are we only seeing this because mainstream media just sort of, they advertise this as part of the narrative, or is this not worse than, as you said, what was going on in the 1930s? A couple of things. I mean, South Asia floods very frequently during the monsoon season, especially during La Nina years. I mean, there have been most, you know, and there's been floods in Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, huge ones, huge ones, even in the 21st century. So this is nothing exceptional. Um, The fact that we now have, you know, more global communications, internet, and also the hyping of every natural disaster and tying it to climate change just gives all this higher visibility. Um, so it's just, it's great, more visible, just more visible. And, and there's nothing exceptional about much of anything that's been going on. It seems like a lot, but, you know, and, and it's a lot of it is that the natural um, 
ocean oscillations, which really determines the seasonal weather. And, you know, we're in a bad spell since about 2017. We've just been in a bad spell for five years. And once we see a shift in the Atlantic multidecadal oscillation and this, that, and the other, things will calm down for a while. It's just that we've been in a really bad you know, place for about five years. Yeah, these combinations of circulation patterns, hmm. you know, happen and bring with it some bad weather. So, um, and we'll cycle out of this, you know, on the time scale, five to 10 years probably. And then maybe we'll see a calmer period with another more active period. And these things are regional. So, you know, there's a lot of natural weather and climate variability and trying to tie each little thing that happens to the slow creep of global warming. Um, it's, it's wrong scientifically and it's counterproductive in terms of actually dealing with this stuff. I mean, even if we go to net zero by 2050, we're still going to have floods in Pakistan's and Hurricane Ian's and stuff like that. We're still going to have it. So spending more time and money trying to figure out how to increase the resilience, especially in these developing countries, to bad hurricanes. And that, you know, the, the, the biggest tragedy of all this is a lot of the, the, you know, the development funds from World Bank and all these kind of things has been refocused on wind and solar rather than on development and adaptation and reducing vulnerability. And so these countries are actually in a worse place <laughs> than if the climate change narrative hadn't been around. So this is actually interfering in with development. I mean, countries like the U.S. can, you know, survive these weather disasters. I mean, it costs money and a, a few people might even lose their lives, but we bounce right back and, you know, we try to make it better. But in, but in these developing countries, Pakistan, I, I mean, this stuff is relentlessly impoverishing. Every time one of these disasters hit, they, they just don't have the resilience to cope. I mean, they all live on the edge. They wipe out their crop. You know, they, they borrowed money, you know, to buy their seeds and this, that, and the other, and then it wipes out and they go further into debt. It's just relentlessly impoverishing. And better forecast, better weather forecasting and climate forecasting, better operational procedures can go a long way towards helping in these countries. And that's what my little company's trying to do. Um, but infrastructure, better infrastructure, and that includes energy. And, and once you have an energy infrastructure you can develop. Now, Bangladesh is one of the bigger success stories here. I mean, you're too young to remember like in the 70s when Bangladesh was the world's biggest basket case. I remember it because George Harrison, the Beatle, you know, had all these concerts for Bangladesh. <laughs> okay. But that was the world's biggest basket case. Now Bangladesh is doing great. They, um, they developed their own natural gas and fossil fuel resources. We actually helped in a small way with the flood forecasting and helped them developing plans to evacuate and, and manage around the floods. But the, the life expectancy has advanced substantially. The birth rate has lowered to 
a saner level, and now they've got a real economy. Okay, and they ignored a lot of the advice from places like World Bank. Oh, you need to wind and solar and this, that, and the other. So, so they sort of went their own way, and they're doing really well. Okay, and you know, having the right politicians, <laughs> you know, in country. But the point is, you have these countries have to develop on their own, and sometimes you get a good leader, and it tends to happen and Bangladesh is a success story. Vietnam is up and coming. You know, there's some success stories out there and there's some other ones that, oh my gosh, you know, it just seems like a basket case. How do, how, how do we help? And, you know, disasters, weather and climate disasters just wipe those countries out. And so trying to figure out the development and the adaptation piece for these countries, this is where we could do the world the most good not trying to get them, you know, allow Africa to develop its own fossil fuel resources so they can develop, you know, and give them a little bit of help. Right now, their resources are being exploited and sent to Europe, okay, rather than being used in country because they don't have the power plants. Just a, and it doesn't take that much to give them some power plants and help them develop an infrastructure, and then Africa could take off. But because of global warming and all that kind of stuff. The powers that be aren't lending or giving Africa the resources that they need to develop these resources. And that's, to me, that's the biggest crime on the planet right now. Um, it's a very different crime than the global warming activists <laughs> think about. But this, this could help, you know, a huge fraction of the world's population develop and then become more environmentally conscious and eventually they will transition to um, cleaner energy. But right now, anybody who thinks that burning dung, okay, in a cook stove, <laughs> oh, it's renewable, right? If they think that's clean energy, no, think again. It, it is shortening their lifespans because it makes air quality absolutely terrible. Having to use dung and wood is just terrible for the climate and it's terrible for their health. Oh, it's renewable. Wood and dung is renewable. <laughs> that, yeah, and it, it just leads us to do so many stupid things. Is CO2 solely responsible for the warming of planet Earth? No. <laughs> no. Um, you've got, okay, the sun throughout, <laughs> you know, Billions, yeah. billions of years, you know, it's mostly been dominated by the sun. Okay, and earth processes, volcanic eruptions and things that go on. Okay. Holy cow, that's cold. But I'm not. Hey, it's survival expert Adam with Patriot. Goodbye. Bye, Adam. Is the warming of the earth necessarily a bad thing? No, <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. Um, warming is not necessary. I mean, this whole issue of dangerous is the weakest part of the whole argument. You know, what is dangerous? You know, it's a whole Goldilocks. I don't know if you're familiar with Goldilocks and the three bears, the fairy tale about, you know, too hot, too warm, just right. And, you know, everybody has a different idea of what's good. But, you know, in the U.S., People are migrating south, Florida, Texas, and California. These are southern states. This is where 
people are migrating in the US. They're going south, not north. They, li they don't like cold winters. And that's the biggest, you know, dominant thing. So, I mean, nobody's moving north. <laughs> people are still living on the coast. President Obama just bought a big estate on coastal Massachusetts. I mean, right on the coast. Uh, you know, these, these, this is what's regarded as desirable. Um, the, the only harm from warming is sea level rise. Okay, and that's a slow creep unless something catastrophic happens, say, to the Anar West Antarctic ice sheet. And if something catastrophic happens there, that's as likely to be associated with under ice volcanoes and whatever as it is to be with global warming. So, I mean, the only real danger is sea level rise. And people can manage sea level rise um, and people can move inland. But you know, there's more water in a warmer climate. Again, South Asia is water starved because, well, <laughs> you wouldn't think so with flooding in Pakistan, but um, overall, because of the population is so high and for agriculture, they're draining down their groundwater and whatever. They, need, they want more water and you get more water with global warming. Um, and, and, you know, you got half the world's population living in that whole region. So, you know, this whole idea that global warming is bad, you know, that's, and, and to make that argument, they rely on extreme weather events, which, you know, you can all, if you go back 100 or 200 years, you can always find something that was as bad or worse. Hmm. So, one of the primary takeaways for me when you look at environmental activists is they, what looks like a very solid conclusion that human beings are not compatible with the longevity of planet Earth. Is there any truth to this? No. <laughs> no, the Earth is going to be fine. I mean, the Earth has survived much worse than humans. <laughs> you know, asteroid strikes and all sorts of indignities. Uh, you know, so the planet Earth is going to be fine. And, you know, species and life, you know, evolves, moves, changes. They said, oh, my gosh, you know, this species has moved a little bit further north. <laughs> so what? Um, you, you know, the Earth has survived far bigger insults than, than what humans are doing. That said, <laughs> we should not be, you know, careless, you know, about our home planet. We, we should do our best to keep it, you know, clean and to minimize our footprint, you know, where we can. But, you know, thinking that the earth is fragile, um, you know, I think, you know, it, it's a worldview that, you know, doesn't really align very well with reality. Um, you know, think about it. Eight billion people is pretty remarkable, you know, that are managing on planet Earth. Um, yeah, I mean, developed countries have a lower environmental footprint than, you know, like, say, what's going on in the U.S. in terms of the environment is much better than what's going on in Africa, because like I said, they have to burn wood and cut trees down and you know, this, that, and the other j just to survive, just to survive. And 
you know, it, when it's a survival issue, you know, you're being much harder on the environment. And when you don't have an economy, the, the reproduction rate and the population growth is very, very high. Um, you know, once you, I mean, the pop, the rate of growth of Bangladesh population, you know, was like population doubling in a tiny amount of time. And now it's regulated, you know, some, you know, that's very close to what I would say developed world standards. And that's what economic development does. You don't need to reproduce so much to uh, survive. So we, we've screwed up our priorities. <laughs> you know, you know, what are our priorities? Our priorities would be for the human race to thrive. And this thriving implies that we have to minimize our footprint on the planet to the extent that we can. But we, we don't sacrifice our thriving and, you know, go back and live in caves, you know, and, and hope that, you know, a lot of the population dies off so we don't have a big footprint on the planet. It doesn't make sense. Our number one goal should be human thriving and flourishing. And that does imply some care of our natural resources and preserving of our environment, but that's not the dominant goal, you know, just to let the environment leave the environment alone. I mean, that's just a non-starter with 8 billion people. You don't know what you're Hey, how about we uh, go ahead and mute that until it's over. What consequences have you faced or pushback as a result of your dissidence? Well, <clears throat> How shall I say? Okay, in the academic world, I faced a lot of consequences. I mean, I, I clearly wasn't going to advance any further. My employers wanted me gone. I was essentially unhirable. Um, I was out of the loop for any professional recognition. Um, you know, so academically, you know, they pretty much finished me off. But <clears throat> so I went to the private sector, <laughs> okay, started my own company where I'm off, you know, doing fascinating work, important work. Um, I have a new book that's in press, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, should be out, you know, in nine months, sometime in 2023. The publication process is not quick, but that's... Um, I think it will be an important and well-received book. Um, I'm, I'm helping people, governments, companies, um, make decisions about climate change, you know, and what they should be doing, and not just about the environmental aspects, but the political aspects and the economic aspects as well. So I'm working, and I'm working with even people at the level of farmers, not personally, but indirectly through an intermediary. So, you know, helping a range of people make better decisions and manage weather and climate risk. And that, that's what I'm trying to do. And like I said, the biggest risk right now is the so-called transition risk, trying to go to net zero too quickly using wind and solar. That's the biggest risk out there right now, as I think the Europeans might agree. <laughs> If the climate change, let's call it propaganda, is not based on sound scientific fact, 
Why do you think it's being pushed for so seriously by governments around the world? What's behind this? Oh, it ties into a political agenda. Okay. Um, and you have to go back to the 1980s to understand where this comes from. You know, the UN environmental program, they, they want world government. They don't like, they don't like capitalism. You know, they, they want, they want, you know, they want power for themselves. They want world government. They want to, it's, it's a power issue and people, and they latched onto global warming as the issue that could help achieve these goals. And then it, you know, it developed a lot of momentum in the late eighties and the nineties. And this was before there was even any signal of warming. I mean, we just come off, been cooling since the 1940s, <laughs> no warming, you know, and so, but they already had a treaty in place in 1992 before there was really any sign of warming. So, so this, you know, it's, the the the, pol the political and policy cart was way out in front of the scientific horse right from the beginning and then the ipcc framed they were instructed to frame the problem to look at dangerous human caused climate change don't tell us about natural climate variability don't tell us about whether warm is good we want to hear about dangerous human caused climate change you know so it's just been politics 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 right from the start and then you know, it's developed a lot of momentum, and if it chimes in with certain people's politics or environmental worldview, okay, and then, and then you've got Greta Thunberg, who's been enormously influenced on children with books, and now the children are being raised on this, all this alarmism, and it's become a huge psychological problem for children. You know, they're suicidal, okay, they don't see that they have a life. Why should I bother to study when the world's going to end in 12 years and all sorts of nonsense that they're fed and they don't know how to filter and the adults in their lives don't know better to tell them. are probably feeding it to some extent, but it's just become, you know, a big cult and, you know, common sense has just, you know, left the room. And you know the the, the 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 thing with the kids is really bad because it's very hard to counter, and, and it's it's a huge global problem. Kids being depressed and suicidal and thinking they don't have a future. <laughs> so how, how how are you know what does that mean for the next generation of people who need to get educated, <laughs> you know, and be engineers and whatever? Not good. All all for a political agenda promoting, you know, to get rid, to get rid of fossil fuels. It, mm. it just makes no sense. Dr. Curry, thank you so much for your time. I'm not just watching for business day. Well, thank you. Well, that was pretty darn good, huh? I think she addressed a lot of the issues that I addressed. <clears throat> Sunlight, the sun, uh, a few things that I didn't catch at first um right at this time uh, the cycles of the uh, pacific atlantic oceans uh influence the weather and if they change the weather changes oh man what a very insightful she's been called a dissident too by the way and i don't think that that's fair um she's just a person that wants the truth to get out to everybody and uh 
no harm, no foul in that, you know? Okay. Now you can see me. <laughs> I don't know why. See, this program, it wherever it is, it's over here. I guess it's over there. This camera turns everything around. It shut me off while it was showing the videos. And I should have been right here, right at this center point. Um, so we'll have to see what happened. But I think my days on Melon are, are few and numbered. Um, so, folks, the, the ball's in your court. What, what do you think? Um, I've always known that this global warming thing is a sham. Um, it's funny because when it first started, Al Gore, Al Gore, um, he was, uh, he'd fly all over the place, all over the world, trying to get this ball rolling. And the hydrocarbons that he poured into the upper atmosphere through those jets, um, that was proof right there that he didn't know what he was talking about or that he has an agenda. And then reports started coming in of his gigantic house. I think he lives in Kentucky or Tennessee, one of the two. And it's a very large, large house. And he was running his thermostats pretty high. Well, if you care about the environment and you're telling everybody else to turn their thermostats down to the 60s, why aren't you doing it, Al Gore? And for the longest time, I, when I would come on to this radio show, I would do uh, Calling Al Gore. Calling Al Gore. Calling Al Gore. Uh, you know, why is, uh, why is there a... Uh, a deep freeze in um, in Michigan right now. If there's global warming, you know it's oh my goodness. But the thing is that they're getting away with it, and that's what really twerks me. Um, they're getting away with it, and they're they're doing what they want to do, and that's that's not right. It's not right at all, and it needs to be addressed, and it needs that this whole thing needs to be fixed. But it's gone pretty far, you know. You got. The Europeans are on board with it now, and uh, I think, I don't know about the Chinese. I don't know what they're on board with anymore, but um, there's just, uh, like she mentioned, the young people are all being indoctrinated into it. Um, everybody, you know, <laughs> a lot of people joke about it. You know, hey, I fell down yesterday. It must be global warming um, or climate change or whatever, and yeah, it's a joke, but at the same time, it's this isn't something really to joke about. Uh, yeah, the, there are a bunch of idiots out there trying to promote this, but by doing that, are we really being smarter? Are we too being idiots? Um, so, I don't know. The only way I can do anything about it is to get on here and, and raise the alarm, you know, and and maybe write some letters to congressmen and stuff like that. Now that we're going to have real congressmen in Congress again, hopefully anyway. And um, so we'll just have to wait and see what we can do. You know, um, I'm not buying an electric car. I've made, I've written out, uh, out of course. No, I wouldn't waste the, I wouldn't waste the graphite on Al Gore um, on my pencil. I've written to Elon Musk and told him that I would never buy an electric car. And because uh, I never will, <laughs> you know, it's the electric cars are nice if you want to have them. Okay. 
But if there's something that you're going to depend on for a commute or something, then I, I, I don't know. I got a problem with that because you got to charge that sucker, right? And it's got to cost money to charge it. So your electric bill is going to go up. And even though your electric bill is going up and you're using an electric car, where's the energy coming from? Here in um, Oregon, I think we're at 60% when it comes to uh, hydroelectric, hydroelectric power. Uh, and hopefully it'll stay there because the the moron in chief who's still in, in the governor's office there until January has decided that uh, salmon are more important than electricity and wants to don't knock down some of the dams on uh, on the Trinity River and also on the Snake River. So <clears throat> anyway, that remains to be seen what happens with that. So. Folks, I think um, I pretty well reached my uh, saturation level here. Um, if you're a praying person, keep me in prayer. My back's been bothering me lately. I have to go get an MRI pretty soon, and they're talking about putting this concrete stuff. That's uh, it's like concrete in one of my vertebrae. So that kind of freaks me out a little bit. But um, anyway, yeah, just keep me in prayer. Keep this ministry in prayer. We're we're uh, we're doing okay, but uh, we're we're going by the skin of our teeth uh, financially, and um, I don't know. I'll keep the show going, um, and and maybe curtail some of my activities in other places if I have to. But uh, the show must go on, like the uh, Ringling or Barnum said. That's right, Barnum. The show must go on. So, folks, uh, with that having been said, I hope that you learned something today. I hope that maybe this, all this stuff helped you identify with that things that you're feeling are, are genuine, that you're not just imagining things, that the press is corrupt and, and uh, the government's corrupt and, uh, and the, uh, the elites are corrupt and, and it's hard to, Hard to know anymore who's not corrupt. So I know I'm not, and I know you are. You're not. So anyway, folks, um, I got to go. I'm got a little agita. So, uh, hey, have a blessed uh, couple of days. We'll be back on Thursday with Brian. Uh, keep Ralph Epperson in prayer, too, because he hasn't been feeling very well. He's been uh, sick lately, and uh, it's not like him. So uh, anyway, I will... Uh, I'll say adios. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to rise upon you and be gracious unto you. May he watch your going out, your coming in, your rising up, and your lying down. May he give you that peace that passes all understanding because he promised to do that if you're willing to trust and obey him. So may you receive that peace that passes all understanding and know that he careth for you. In Yeshua's holy name, we pray to the Father. Avenue. Amen and amen. Good night, folks. Have a blessed couple of days.